Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. You guys doing good tonight? Yeah, you are. Love you, Freddie. Well, good to see you guys. Tonight we're, uh, we're starting a new series. We're starting a new series on the topic of identity, right? And it's identity series. And so the core question that we are going to be asking in this series is this question, who am I? Who am I, right? And I don't just mean like, hey, surface level, what's your name? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where'd you grow up? But really, who are you? Beneath the surface level. Because it's often not until we look a little bit deeper, right? We dig a little bit deeper that we truly begin to reveal who we believe ourselves to be and what we believe to be most true about ourselves. And when we do choose to look a little bit deeper, right, past the surface level, often what we find is that deep below, deep insecurity lies. And I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago when I was watching uh, Toy Story with my daughter. Any Toy Story fans out there? Love Toy Story. I was watching Toy Story with my daughter, and she isn't really into movies yet. And so really, I was just watching Toy Story uh, by myself. And uh, we were watching Toy Story 4, which is by far and away the worst Toy Story, right? Yeah, yeah, they should have ended it at 3. It was a perfect ending. But they did four, and now there's going to be a five, I guess. So, anyways, you know that? It's going to be great. Hopefully they fix it, because four was terrible. So I was watching Toy Story 4, uh, and I found myself getting really frustrated. Because basically, like, I was just looking at every situation that they were getting into, and I'm like, man, this was totally avoidable. It was like a totally avoidable situation, and I was getting especially frustrated with Woody, because Woody was like the reason for like every single reason, like everything mess that they were getting into. Like he is a control freak. He's like, man, it has to be this way, my way. And so everything, yep, there's Woody. And so every, every like thing that he was getting into was like, what? Like, what are you doing? And it, it, it occurred to me, it was like, why, like why, are you keep, why do you keep getting the gang in this mess? And it's because Woody is uh, deeply insecure. Okay, he's deeply insecure. Think about it. And I started thinking about it, and, and here's the thing. Woody is not the only one. Woody is not the only one. Uh, the, the same is true if you think about every single Toy Story, Toy Story character. Like, you go down the list, like just about every single one. Like on the surface level, they look like just this cute group of talking toys. But if you like dig a little deeper, like, man, they're like really insecure. Let me go down the list. So you got Woody. For him, like what's his identity? It's written on his foot, right? Andy. He's Andy's favorite toy. And that's like his core identity. Like you take that away and he's like, he creates all the messes, becomes his control freak. He needs to be Andy's favorite toy. Like that's like core identity. Then you, uh, then you get to in Toy Story 1, Buzz shows up. Yep, you got Buzz. Here he is. And Buzz, like what's his identity? He's absolutely convinced that he is a space ranger sworn to protect the galaxy from the evil Emperor Zerg, right? That's who he like at the core believes he is. And it's not until Woody like convinces him that you are a toy. That, that's not my best uh, impersonation. You are a toy that's like identity crisis, like goes into this depression basically, you know, and just and, and hits him at his core, right? You got Buzz, then you got Jesse, right? who was abandoned as a kid, and now she has trust issues and doubts she'll ever be loved again, right? Sad story. Good song, though, in her little flashback. 
Then you got Lotso. What a jerk, right? Also, also childhood trauma. But now he's found his new identity in power and control, making sure others can't have what he had, what he lost, right? And then you have Ken, right? Kind of speaks for himself, right? <laughs> can't live without his 1967 groovy formal collection jacket, right? And last but not least, you have Forky. Yeah, right? Should be Sporky. I don't know why it's Forky. Right? Who literally thinks that he is a piece of trash at his core of his identity, right? He can't fathom the thought of someone loving him. And uh, by the way, Forky saved Toy Story 4. Carried the movie, okay? Best character. Um, here's the point. Well, one point is, yes, like they thought, each of these characters thought that they needed Andy or Bonnie. What they really needed was therapy, okay? That's one point. <laughs> here's the second point. Guys, I don't think we're that different from them, okay? I know it's just toys, but I don't think that we're that, that different from them, right? At first glance, right, just a group of toys who have it all together, you look a little bit deeper, and it's like, man, deeply insecure. Same is true for us. At first glance, hey, we're in college, right? This should be the best time of our lives, like all the fun, none of the responsibility, right? We should have our lives together. And at a surface level, we do. But when we, when we examine it a little bit closer— when we look at our hearts, we too often find that we are deeply insecure, right? Trying to figure out who we are and what is, the, what is the thing that is true about me, that like Woody, we have things that we are writing on our foot and saying, this is what is most true about me. Maybe for you, it's like, it's finding your identity in what others think about you, right? Or how funny you are or how good looking you are. Or maybe it's finding my identity in a certain skill that I'm, that I'm better at than other people. Or for you, maybe it's your good works that you let define you, right? I check all the boxes. Like, I, I, I don't miss assault company. That's your identity. And so if someone calls you out on your sin, it wrecks your whole world because it's like they're calling you out. They're, they're, they're calling your identity out, calling you out as a person. Or maybe for you, the word that you define yourself with is unlovable, because how you've been hurt in the past. Or maybe at the core, you too believe that you are like trash and not worth anyone's time. If you had to look a little closer, if you had to look what is written on the bottom of your foot, what would you find? What are the things that you are letting define yourself? Be honest with yourself. Like literally, maybe even write those down. Try to honestly assess what are the things that I'm defining myself by. And throughout this series, I want us to look at that, who we believe ourselves to be, but I don't want to stop there. I also want to look at who God says that you are. So that's what we're going to do. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. As you turn there, here's a little bit of context. So 1 Peter is a letter written uh, by, by Peter. And remember, Peter was a fisherman uh, he was a fisherman, one of the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. And now roughly 30 years later, after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, there's all these churches that have been planted, right? All these, these, these Jesus churches that have been planted. And here's, here's what we see, is that church plant life is not easy, right? They have experienced, as they've been sent out, 
right? They, they've experienced a, like extreme persecution. They've been oppressed. They're discouraged. And as it's similar to us, whenever we have suffering in our life, their identity was beginning to be shaken. And so Peter is writing to these churches, and it's gonna, this letter is going to go around to them to encourage them and to remind them of who they are and their identity in Christ. So that's where we're at in 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, first part of that is Peter begins to explain, hey guys, you shouldn't be surprised. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face this. People are going to reject you. They're going to reject Jesus. You shouldn't be surprised. But then he gives this powerful identity statement. He says, but here is who you are. Here it is. 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because there's a lot packed in here, and so Actually, for the next six weeks, this entire series, we're going to unpack these two verses. Because packed into these two verses are deep and meaningful identity truths about who we now are in Christ. But here's my guess. My guess is if you're look, as you're looking at that verse, right, like you look at this verse and you think, okay, if I were to take this verse and put it on a little uh, post-it note, put it on my bathroom mirror, be like, okay, I'm going to remind myself who I am every day. I am, I am a chosen race. I am a royal priesthood. My guess is like, you're like that's not going to do a lot for me. You know, it's like that, those are confusing words. We don't use those words a lot. It, it, Peter, it'd be easier if you just said like, hey, you are loved, you know, you are strong, you can do it, you know? Like, that'd be maybe a little bit easier. But here's the thing. Peter very intentionally used every single one of these identity statements. Because packed into each one of these identity statements are rich in weighty truths that draw all the way back from the Old Testament. Okay, Jake uh, hinted at this last week. He said, did you notice that in, 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 our, in your Bibles, right, each of these little phrases are bolded. What does that mean? That's because each of these phrases are like flashbacks. They're flashing back to these significant Old Testament stories, right, and, and, and to connecting them there. And when we, when we go back, when we see these statements and we go back and we see them in this Old Testament context and these stories, they begin to load these statements with significant meaning. And so that's what we're going to do. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look and, and try to seek to understand each of these identity statements in the right context. And so we're going to look back at, at the stories they're drawing back from. And so tonight, I want to help us understand that first identity, identity statement that if we are in Christ, we are a chosen race. A chosen race. So you can turn your Bibles actually now all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Chapter 3. And what we're going to see is a story of someone who was chosen by God. So, Exodus, second book of your Bible, a little more context. First book of your Bible is Genesis. And in Genesis, it follows the story of Abraham. Abraham and his descendants, the promise that God 
the promise that God gave to Abraham is, was that he would bless him and his descendants, that he would make them into a great nation. And so we follow the story of Abraham in Genesis and his son Isaac and then his son Jacob, who was also named Israel, and that's where we get the term Israelites from. In his son Joseph, right? You remember the story of Joseph who is sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, right? And then earns favor with the Egyptian pharaoh. And that actually ends up being the thing that saves his family during a famine, right? And so all of the Israelites, all of this family come to live in Egypt. And that's actually where we pick up in Exodus. Some time has passed. The Israelites, God's chosen people are, are, in, are in Egypt, and Exodus 1 uh, tells us in verse 6 that Joseph, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful. They increased rapidly. They multiplied and became extremely numerous that the land was filled with them. So that's where we're at. They're, they get to Egypt and they, they start expanding. They, there's a ton of Israelites in Egypt but then the old pharaoh that liked Joseph passed away. A new pharaoh has come into power, and this one does not enjoy the Israelites, right? He actually uh, hates the Israelites. He oppresses them. He forces them into labor. He makes them his slaves, right? And they, they work the grounds, right? And they're, and they're in this, this period of being oppressed. But the Israelites, it wasn't that he just hated them that much. The Israelites were growing in such big numbers that he's like, we, we, I, I can't have this anymore. So he orders that all of the, the male newborn Israelites be thrown into the Nile River. And long story short, this little Israelite boy named Moses is born and his mom uh, tries to hide him for a while, but he gets too big. And so she has to put him in a basket, puts him in the Nile River and then watches where he goes. And as he goes down the Nile River, she sees that he's picked up by Pharaoh's daughter out of the river. And Pharaoh's daughter actually has compassion on him and takes him in to live in, in, in Pharaoh's palace. So that's actually the story of Moses. He grows up as an Israelite. He grows up in the palace of uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And as he gets older, he grows up and he starts to look out and he sees, oh, my people, my Israelites, right? They're, they're, they're being oppressed. He sees, he sees what they're going through, right? And it, and it starts to weigh on him. And one day, there's a story about where he goes out and he sees uh, Israelites being beaten by Egyptians he gets mad, he goes up, he sneaks behind this Egyptian man, he hits him with a rock in the head, and he kills him. Right? That's the story of Moses. He goes, he kills this man, and then he seeks to hide his body, so he buries the body in sand, hoping that Pharaoh won't, won't see. But word gets back to the Egyptians, word gets back to Pharaoh, and he seeks to kill Moses. Right? He goes to kill him, but Mo as he's going to kill him, Moses runs away. He runs away, far, far away to the land of Midian, settles there, gets a wife, and that's where we pick up there's the background, Exodus chapter 3. So, Israelites oppressed in Egypt. Now Moses run away. Here's verse 1 in chapter 3. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't this bush burning up? 
just to, to pause here, guys, put yourself in Moses' shoes. Like, he is witnessing something remarkable. Like, he's, 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 he's run away to this foreign land of Midian, right? He's in the wilderness. He comes upon this bush that is totally engulfed in flames. But the odd thing is that the bush is not burning up, right? It's not burning up like it should be. So he goes to investigate it. In verse 4, we see, And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Just to pause here again, which at this point, I guess, like, imagine like, how terrified you are. Like now it's, you're, you've gone to see this is a weird sight. Now the bush, the fiery bush is calling to me. Great. So Moses answers. He says, here I am. Verse five. But God said, do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So this point, the story has progressed. The Lord, now, it's it's not just a fiery bush, but the Lord has made himself known. He's, He's identified that it is the Lord our God. And guys, we see this take place multiple times throughout our Bibles, that the invisible God, right? We believe that God is invisible. We, we can't see him with our eyes, but occasionally the invisible God will make himself visible, right? He chooses to manifest himself in a physical way, and that's what he's doing here. In, in this case, the Lord has appeared as what looks like a fire in the bush, and he calls for Moses, right? But then, imagine this, like this is God in a physical manifestation. Like think about that. Like this isn't just a casual conversation, like, hey, hey, Moses, come over here. Great. How's, how's it going, God? You know, it's like, imagine like how terrified you would be. Moses is terrified. He's completely in the presence of God. He's too afraid to even look. What happens next? Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites cry for help, so because the Israelites cry for help has come to me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I think about this. And Moses has just, he's just run away from Egypt. Like Pharaoh's trying to kill him. Like who, like who am I? Like why, why would you send me back to where I just ran away from? Why me? Why are you sending me? How am I ever going to do that? Look in verse 12. God answered, listen, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. 
the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Okay, so one more time, there's a lot here. Israel is being oppressed by Pharaoh, and God has initiated this rescue plan. He's initiated this rescue plan, and he's chosen this guy, Moses, who had murdered the Egyptian and had hid the body, and he's run far away to be the guy that would go and rescue his people. This is the guy that, that God has chosen. And it leads to the question, why? Like, why, why Moses? Why the murderer who ran away? Well, I want us to go back through the story and see three takeaways, okay? Three takeaways. Here's the first one. Why Moses? Here's the first takeaway is that God knew Moses' sin and sufferings. Okay, he knew his sin and his sufferings. It's not like God didn't know who he was choosing, right? Before God revealed himself to Moses, he knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew Moses' sin and he knew the sufferings of the people of Egypt, the Israelites, right? Verse seven says, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors and I know about their sufferings. God is all knowing, He knows everything, right? I would have to imagine that if you were the Israelites, right, and you've been enslaved by the Egyptians, right, and and you've seen seen all the atrocities that have been happening, you you had to have been thinking like, God, where are you? Like, do you not hear our prayers? Do you not see our pain? But God says that he does, right? He says, I've heard all of your prayers. I've seen the oppression. He knows their suffering, And he has a plan. So we we see that God knows their suffering. We also see that God knows Moses' sin. He knows about the Egyptian man that Moses murdered and tried to hide. He knows that Moses has has run away, that he's a coward. And he knows every other sin that Moses has, has ever committed. And this is evidenced by the fact that Moses is so sinful in the presence of a holy God that he couldn't even look at him. It was too terrifying. He couldn't even look at him. Have you ever been in a situation before where you, th- you look at where you're at and you say, I don't, I don't belong here, right? I don't belong here. Uh, well, I have a family member here in town that, uh, that told me at, at, at Christmas, he's like, hey, if you ever want tickets to you and I basketball game, just let me know. And so I, I texted him a couple weeks ago and he's like, yeah, I'll get you some tickets. I'll send you four floor courtside tickets. I'm like, dang, I just, I thought I'd been happy anywhere, but I'll take them. So I'm like, okay, I feel like royalty. I take these tickets and uh, me and my wife, we go last week uh, versus, who would we play? It was, uh, they're in the Bears. They're the, what? Missouri State. I almost said Murray State, but I knew it was Missouri State. We played Missouri State and guys, I was like walking down the steps and like, I've like never sat on the court before. I'm like, this I don't deserve this, right? And so I'm like walking down the steps. You get to like, okay, I, up top I felt pretty good, but like every step I took down, like especially when I got to like row five, row four, row three, I'm like, do they allow this? Like, I, like what am I doing here? Like this doesn't feel right. And then I stepped on the court, right? And, and, and went around to my seat and I'm like, they're practicing right there. They're warming up. And I'm like, I literally, like I shouldn't be here. Like is the security guard gonna like tackle me? Like what's, gonna, what's, what's going on? And like the, the athletic director is there, like I like had met him and it's like all this stuff going on. I'm like, 
I don't, like, what is this? Like, this doesn't feel real. And the Cats won that game. Go Cats. And, uh, and literally the whole game, I was like, my, like, my mouth was just like open. I was like, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. Like, what is this? Guys, how much more is that true for sinful human beings in the presence of God? To be standing in the presence of God. Like, think about this. Moses is standing in the presence of God. He does not deserve to be there. His sinful nature has never been more exposed than it is right now. He is standing in the holy, almighty presence of God, and everything about him is totally exposed, and he is terrified. So we see that God knew Moses' sin, and he knew his suffering. But here's the second takeaway, is that God chose him anyways. God chose him anyways. See, God saw Moses in his suffering and his sin, and he chose him anyways. And he does it in a powerful way. He doesn't do it from afar, but he does it by coming down and revealing himself. Right? God doesn't do his work remotely. Right? He says, I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them. He sees his people, and he comes down to rescue them. But he doesn't just come down in an impersonal way, but he tells Moses his name. Who, are, who am I to call you? He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. Right? He tells them his name. That in Hebrew, this is Yahweh. God is a personal God who reveals himself to his people on a first name basis. And this is the God who chose Moses and chose Israel to be his people. Right? It still raises that question, Why? Why would this holy, almighty God choose a sinner like Moses to lead his people in his rescue plan? Well, here's what we know. We, wanna, we know that one of the reasons is not. We know what one of the reasons is not. It's not based on merit. Right? It's not based on merit. Because there was nothing spectacular about Moses, Right? He wasn't like this, this super good leader. He wasn't this super holy man. It wasn't based on merit. In fact, Moses himself gets this. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Like, God, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you know that I'm a coward who's run away? And God is saying, I know all of that, and I choose you. You are going to be the one I'm going to send. He doesn't choose people based on merit, because if it was purely based on merit— There'd be no one to send. But in God's sovereignty, he purely chooses people out of love and delight. Out of love and delight. Here's another way of saying it, is that God doesn't go on blind dates. Right? It's not like he showed up here in the wilderness and was like, man, I hope this is the right guy. No, he knew what he was getting into. He knew everything about Moses, all of his sin, all of his suffering. He says, and you are going to be who I choose out of nothing but his sovereign love and delight. God knew Moses' sin and suffering. God chose him anyways. And here's takeaway number three, is that to be chosen by God has significant implications. Right? It's not that just that God chose Moses and that he chose Israel to be his people. It's that he made them a promise and he keeps his promises. 
Right, in verses 16 through 19, the Lord instructs Moses to go back to the Israelites. And then in verse 19, he warns Moses. Here's what he says. He says, however, when you go back, here's what's gonna happen. I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. God promised that he would rescue his people, and that's exactly what he did. Right, you guys, maybe, maybe you know the rest of the story, maybe you don't. Moses, he goes back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, right, to tell him to let his people go. And what does Pharaoh do? He says no. He says no. And he says no, and he no, and no again. But what, each time he says no, what does the Lord do? He steps in, right? He sends the plagues. He says, and Pharaoh continues to say no until he can't have any more. And so he says, okay, get out of here. Israelites, I don't want anything to do with you. Leave, right? So he tells them to go and they, they go. And the Israelites begin to leave. But as they're leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind. He hates them. So he sends his armies after them. And he traps them. He, the Israelites are trapped between the armies and the Red Sea. And again, there's, it seems like there's nowhere else to go. But what does the Lord do? He steps in like he promised he would, right? In, the, in this miraculous story of the Red Sea being split into two walls where the Israelites walk through on dry ground and it closes back in on the Egyptians. God stepped in. God provides a way. He split the Red Sea, providing a path of rescue. Guys, that's what it means to be chosen by God has significant implications. It's not like they were chosen by a team captain. It's not like they were chosen just by like a CEO or a president or a king of a powerful country. They were chosen by God, by Yahweh, by the creator of the heavens and the earth, which means that everything that he says will come true will come true, and it has. The implications of being chosen are incredible. God has chosen them, he's on their side, and he is for them, and because of that, they have nothing to worry about. So, that's the story. Here's the question. What does this mean for us? How is it beneficial to us sitting in this room that thousands of years ago, God chose a specific group of people in a specific region in a specific time to be his people? How is that helpful for us? Well, as you go back to 1 Peter, what's interesting about Peter's letter to the churches is that though Peter himself was Jewish, I mean, he was, he was a descendant from the Israelites, the people that he was writing to were not. Right? In fact, scholars believe that most of the audience that he was writing to would have been Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish, consisting of people of different ethnicities, not Israelites. And so what's mind-blowing about this statement in 1 Peter, when, when he says, you are a chosen race, is that Peter is ascribing an identity statement that was meant for one group in one time, now to many people of many races in these churches. He's saying, you are now chosen. How is that possible? How can they too be chosen by God? 
Well, there's only one way it's possible. And that's like, just like with Moses, if God sees us in our sin and in our suffering, if he comes down to us in a physical and real way, and he chooses us to be his people. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus. Right? This is, this is why the words are bolded in our Bibles. Because God's rescue plan in Israel was a foretaste of the rescue that we could receive in Jesus. But Jesus didn't come down to rescue us from an earthly enemy. He came down to rescue you from the ultimate enemy, sin, death, and hell. So that if you believe in him, you can be rescued from your sin. These were the words that Peter needed these churches who were being oppressed, who were being persecuted to hear, is that you don't need to be insecure about who you are or what's going to happen to you. What you need to know is that God has chosen you. He's chosen you. And that's all that we need. Because if God has chosen me, that has incredible implications. If God is for me, who can be against us? Salt Company, let me make this as clear as I can to you. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, right? And that's, that's an important stipulation, right? This, is, this, this identity statement is only for those who have surrendered their life to Jesus. But if you have done that, you have been chosen by the God of the universe. He chose you. You are his. It's hard to even comprehend something so amazing as that, as the God of the universe choosing someone like me. And if we were to truly understand it, like we would respond just like, like Moses. God, who am I? Who am I that you would choose me? because I know it can't be based on my own merit because I've failed you so many times and there is sin in every single corner of my heart. I know it can't be, be based on my merit. But remember, God doesn't go on blind dates, right? God wasn't on a blind date when he chose you. He's not surprised to hear of your sin. He's not surprised to hear of your suffering. He's not surprised to hear of your shortcomings. No, God sees every single bit of it. And still in Jesus, he chooses you. He's come down from heaven. He's told you his name and he's rescued you on the cross. And guys, here's another beautiful thing. It's not just that God chose you, but he chose us. He's called us a chosen race. Which at first you're like what, like, what is that even talking about here? See, Jesus isn't talking about skin color when he says you are a chosen race. What does he mean? Well, last week we talked about relationships, like the family relationships that we have, the earthly families. And this week what we're seeing is that Jesus has brought us in to a spiritual family. That together we make up a chosen spiritual race. And listen, this is not to minimize earthly race or skin color, right? God has made every single person in his image, which means he has intentionally created people of many cultures and many skin colors. And there's a beauty and there's a significance that comes with that and who God has made you to be. Right? And our skin color is, like, it is part of our identity that God has given us. But listen, now... Because of the cross, 
more than we are united by the blood of our ancestors, now we are united by the blood of Jesus. This isn't to minimize the identity of your earthly race, but it's to move it from primary to secondary importance. That now, more, that now, more than we are united with each other by our blood, we are united with each other by the blood of Jesus. We've been brought into the family of God that is the church that isn't just for the Israelites, but it's for, the people, for people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And now this is a key part of our new identity. We have a new family that is made up of all people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, united by his blood. That is true of you if you are in Christ. So for some of you, you may be thinking, okay, sounds nice to be chosen by God, but how do I know if I'm chosen? Right, if God chooses those who he wants, based, not based on merit, how do I know if I'm chosen or not? Right, that's a great question, and it actually introduces the topic of predestination. Does God predestine or predetermine who he chooses, who he doesn't? And we're actually going to have a late night about that conversation in a few weeks. It'll be a really good conversation. But to make it as simple as I can right now, how do I know if I'm chosen? Guys, in one sense, it's as simple as this. Do you want to be? How do we know who's chosen and who is not? As Jesus makes it clear, John 3, 16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. If you want to receive this brand new identity in Christ, listen, you can have it. You too can be called chosen by God. What was the key word from that verse? If you believe in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and surrender your life to him. This can be your identity too. So let me finish by asking this question. What is it that you have written on the bottom of your foot? What is that thing that defines your identity? Because if you're anything like me, I find myself putting my identity in what others think about me or how good I am at something or how godly I try to be. And here's what I found, and maybe you have too, is that when this is your identity, it leaves you anxious, it leaves you tired, it leaves you scared. Because like Woody, right, you're constantly having to try to protect that thing that defines you. Salt Company, listen, if you have Jesus, he defines you. And he has written in permanent marker who you are and who are we. We are chosen by God. And we have been united together by the blood of Jesus. He saw us in our sin. He sees us in our suffering. And still, out of love and delight, said, I want you. That's what defines us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this identity statement that you have chosen us. God, who are we? 
to be chosen by you. But God, out of love and delight, you sent your son to rescue us so that we can have a new identity, Lord, and be united with each other in you. God, I pray that you would help us to surrender those idols, those identity statements, those lies that we say about ourselves, the things that we let define us more than anything else. Lord, would you have it? God, we don't want to be defined by those things anymore. Lord, would you help us to enter into tonight to a posture of surrendering those things to you? God, would we not be identified by how well we're liked or how funny we are or how smart we are? Lord, would we give it all to you? Lord, would you help us to see that if we've given our lives to you, Lord, our identity is in you, that we have been chosen. And God, would you blow our minds with that reality as we sit here, Lord, without merit of our own. God, we only sit here, only be able to be called chosen because of the blood of Jesus. That a holy God would reconcile himself with sinners like us and give us a new identity. God, would we be blown away by that new identity? Would we hold on to it, Lord? Would it result in joy? Would it result in confidence? And Lord, would it result in worship? In your name we pray. Amen.